According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes in the scriptures, as always. Where else would our growth come from? But the word of God. Join me in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 36. Hope we understand how desperately we need the truth. The truth is what sustains us. The truth is what nourishes us. According to Romans chapter 12, the truth is what transforms us in the renewing of our mind. And we need to be transformed by the truth or else we will be conformed to this age. And uh, the direction I see this age going is not something we want to be conformed to. So uh, let's begin with a word of prayer and ask the Father to humble us. Ask the Father to implant his word within each one of us. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for truth. We thank you that you are the God of truth. We are children of truth. Your spirit is the spirit of truth who indwells each one of us, Father, and guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. Father, we call upon you and your faithfulness once again to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear. Father, bless the truth of your word as it goes forth and nourish your children on this day. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we arrive at Isaiah 36, and we're going to have some fun with this, not only today, but in the coming weeks. We're at a section here, really in between uh, what has preceded and what will follow. We're in a section here, 36, 37, 38, and 39, four chapters that is really unlike anything else in Isaiah. It's unlike uh, the first uh, 35 chapters, and it's unlike chapters 40 and following, The bulk of Isaiah is not really story. The bulk of Isaiah is content, it's messages, it's thus saith the Lord, or a vision came to me, and so forth. There's some slight stories, for example, in chapter 7, when he goes and he talks to King Ahab about uh, not being afraid of the invading armies. Well, we get more of that here, and we have story here. And as a matter of fact, we'll just kind of introduce it. It says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judea of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field. I don't know if that jumps out at you or not or reminds you of anything, but we've seen this conduit before. We've seen this uh, position before. Uh, Isaiah has stood in this spot before and, uh, and uttered a prophecy and uttered a promise. And this is the very spot now that this blasphemer is going to stand and taunt the uh, armies of the living God. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. And Rabshakeh said to him, say now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria. All right, A faithful prophet will stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, and deliver a message from heaven. A wicked uh, emissary like Rabshakeh stands up and says, Thus saith uh, Sennacherib, the great king, the king of Assyria. And effectively, what we have here in this chapter is the surrender negotiations. We have the demand on the part of Assyria who has been successful every time they've tried to take a city, they've never failed to take a city. 
And they've taken the northern kingdom, and they're now threatening the southern kingdom. And we have the threat here in chapter 36 of uh, the demand to surrender and pay tribute. Um, Well, the good news is next week we'll come back to chapter 37, and we're going to see the destruction of this Assyrian army and the rescue for, uh, for Jerusalem. Let me give you just a brief word here to introduce this. Isaiah chapters 36 through 39 are largely parallel to 2 Kings 18 through 20. In some cases, in many cases, it's word for word, verse for verse, word for word, and you wonder, uh, you know, did uh, the author of 2 Kings get graded down for being such a copycat? All right. I lost my coffee. There we go. Um, as I believe Isaiah was written first, prior to 2 Kings, and then uh, the, the copying took place to take the Isaiah material and incorporate it within the narrative of the life and reign of, uh, of King Hezekiah. So if you would like, on your own during this week, you can read through those chapters and you'll see that. Also some additional verses, uh, snippets really, that you can glean out of Second Chronicles, specifically Second Chronicles chapter 32. But they're going to be more of snippets or, or isolated verses that you're gleaning rather than broad uh, parallel passages such as we have here. Basically, Isaiah 36 is a complete parallel to Second Kings chapter 18. All right, verse by verse, word for word, nearly in total. Likewise, chapter 7 is paralleled with Second uh, Kings chapter 19. And then chapter 20 is uh, really broken down into uh, Isaiah 38 and 39. And you can just, with a flip of a page here, you can kind of see uh, chapter 38 has 22 verses and chapter 39 is just a short eight verses. Uh, those are combined together by the author of Second Kings into a single chapter, all contained within um, chapter 20. And I'll spell this out even more in the subpoints. I should have probably put those up by now. Anyway, it's not unusual for portions of Scripture to copy from one another. We debated in chapter 2 whether Isaiah borrowed from Micah or Micah borrowed from Isaiah. There's other uh, parallels that we see in different times. Now, this is not the first time that we've encountered something similar. Previously, when we were dealing in Isaiah chapter 7, there was a parallel in 2 Kings. And the parallel there was 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 5 and 6, and had to do with a war, an invasion uh, that was threatening Jerusalem. In fact, the context is quite similar to what we've got going on here today. There's a king in Jerusalem, and he's terrified that these invading armies are going to uh, you know, end his reign that Jerusalem will be lost and that the southern kingdom is going to fall. And, uh, and the king at that time was Ahab, and he had kind of sort of a little bit of faith, not really. And when uh, Isaiah said, hey, go ahead and pick a miracle for yourself and I'll do it, and then, uh, and then you'll know that God's promises are true. And you, might, you remember this from chapter 7? And the king said, ooh, no, 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 I'm not going to pick a miracle. I don't want to tempt the Lord. And that's when Isaiah said, you rebel, right? Okay, fine. Don't ask for one. I'll give you one. How about that? A virgin will conceive and bear a son. And we have the great prophecy of the virgin birth in Isaiah 7.14 that is given as a sign to the king who will not ask for a sign. All right. Now, fast forward a number of administrations to a whole new king. Now we've got King Hezekiah. Now it's a different army that's invading. It's the Assyrians invading. And uh, really, much of what we're talking about today goes back to that chapter 7 episode. Because the king that had little faith or no faith back in chapter 7 decided, well, 
I can't trust in the Lord to deliver me. Maybe the Assyrians will come and help. And he sends gifts to the Assyrians to come and try to solve his problems. And these are the very same Assyrians now that are Hezekiah's problem. All right? And uh, so much doctrine in respect to that that I'd get lost probably trying to illustrate it. So let me move on. Uh, like I say, Isaiah 36 has a parallel in 2 Kings chapter 18 with one notable exception. Isaiah 37 has its parallel in 2 Kings 19, almost verse by verse. There's only one slight versification glitch in uh, in Isaiah, which is why we have an extra verse, 1 through 38. We'll talk about that next week. Whereas in 2 Kings, it's verses 1 through 37 of 2 Kings 19. And then, like I say, uh, Isaiah 38 has its parallel in uh, 2 Kings 20 and Isaiah 39 as well, also in 2 Kings chapter 20. So feel free to do that reading if you want in the coming weeks. We'll have three more weeks in this section of the book to, uh, to deal with this, to deal with the invading Assyrians, their threats, the fear that uh, Hezekiah has, and the response to his fear, which we need to learn from. What do we do if we are, if we are beset by fear? All right, We don't want to just deny it and act like it's not fearsome. We are afraid. What do we do with that fear? How do we then take it to the Lord? How do we lay it before the Lord? Which is what we're going to see next week when uh, Isaiah lays it before the Lord in, in prayer. Now, the context for, for today's events. Eight years after taking the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, the Assyrian king Sennacherib is now threatening Jerusalem. The time frame for Isaiah 36 is 701 B.C. Eight years after taking the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, now Jerusalem is being threatened. Time has gone by. And for this, I'm going to hold my finger at Isaiah. I am going to bring in Second Kings just to show you the, the context. There is no reference to the northern kingdom anywhere here in this chapter. Um, but they, they were swept away eight years prior to, this, uh, to the events of this chapter. So... I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I know uh, I'm always running out of time before the end. And my favorite part of this message comes at the end, so I want to rush through this early stuff and get to that. <laughs> All right. Um, Second Kings chapter 18. Uh, the chapter begins in verse 1. It came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And that's how they dated things. They didn't date it with B.C. or A.D. or whatever. Uh, when, I, when a southern king took the throne, uh, it was marked as being whatever year it was for the king of the north. And when the king of the north took a throne, it was marked as being whatever it was for the king of the south. They used each other, the kings, you know, the, the northern and southern kingdoms, as a, a point of comparison to date these kings. So it was Hosea's third, uh, third year as king in the north that Hezekiah now becomes king in the south. Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. All right? He was a good king. In fact, he's the best king since David, and there's not going to be a king after him that rises to Hezekiah levels. And, and some of this is important to see because this is what's going to get mocked by Rabshakeh when he's at the gates and taunting uh, the Jewish people. 
Uh, Hezekiah removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. And uh, he broke into pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Remember that bronze serpent they made in the wilderness? They were bitten by serpents and they had to look at that serpent to live, right? Look and live. Well, in later years, they kept it, uh, I don't know if they kept it in a museum or where they kept it, but at a certain point, they made an idol out of it and they started to bow down before Nehushtan. And uh, anyway, Hezekiah says, enough of that, we're done with that. And he puts away with it. Um, verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. This is faith. The just shall live by faith. And this is the example we need to learn from. This is what comes under attack in our lesson today. It's an attack on faith. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. I think excluding David, of course, because he's after the order of David here. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandment, which the Lord had commanded him. So he's a good king. He's a great king. And uh, yet he's going to be tested with the arrival of the Assyrian armies. You say, well, if he was so obedient, why does he get tested this way? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Okay, glad you asked. Anyway, there's more detail on this. You'll notice, if I back up, there is an omission. When you look at the parallelism between Isaiah 36 and 2 Kings, you'll spot it. The omission is in between verse 13 and verse 17. The parallelism in 2 Kings 18 is verse 13 and then 17 through 37. The reason why is because there is a lapse of, of Hezekiah's faith in verses 14, 15, and 16 recorded in 2 Kings, but not recorded in Isaiah. Isaiah leaves out the fear and the tribute and the, the bribery attempt that he makes. He, he plunders the temple and tries to buy off uh, Sennacherib with some plunder and some loot. And so uh, what is recorded in 2 Kings 18, verses 14, 15, and 16 is actually omitted from uh, from the record here in chapter 36. Also, some other things are, are omitted as well. Reading from 2 Kings 18, 13, it says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. All right, in the 14th year. Now, I'm going to make sure I'm not skipping over. Yep, I am. <laughs> All right. Are you with me still? We're in 2 Kings 18. Everyone knows where I am? All right. Um, and we, we left off in verse 6 that Hezekiah is a great king. Okay. Now, verse 9, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. This is the end of the northern kingdom. The divided kingdoms that had been split with 10 of the tribes in the north and two of the tribes in the south, that comes to an end right here. While Hezekiah is the king in the south, watching the kingdom fall to the north. And the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria, put them in Halah and the Habor, the river Gozan, and the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant. Even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they would, not, they would neither listen nor do it. Okay? And that's kind of remarkable too. There's a pattern, right? There's a pattern in our negative volition where we stop doing the will of God. We still listen occasionally, right? We still listen now and then. It makes us feel good. Yeah, we're in church. We're listening. But we stopped doing it a long time ago, 
Okay? And then we take the final step where we just don't even bother to listen anymore. I mean, why bother listening anymore? We're not doing it anyway, so just blow it off and who cares? That's the nature, the progressive nature of negative volition and how you slide into more and more darkness. All right, so that's the context then for the 14th year of King Hezekiah. All right, so we understand eight years now have gone by since his sixth year when he saw the northern kingdom swept away. And now it's no longer Shalmaneser, now it's Sennacherib, different king. Worse than, uh, seems like every time a new Assyrian king came, he was worse than the guy before him. And um, he comes up, he takes these fortified cities in his own boasting. I think he claims 46 or some kind of, there's a number of cities he claims he takes away from the Jews. And uh, so forth. 14 through 16 is when Hezekiah um, fails, I believe. He uh, he, uh, tries to bribe him. He tries to pay some funds. He's plundering the temple. It's not a good moment for for Hezekiah here in 14 through 16. Then verse 17, the king of Assyria sent Tartan, who's this guy, and Rabsaris and Rabshakeh from Lachish to, the, to King Hezekiah. All right, that's the last thing I think I'm going to say in this chapter. There's actually three emissaries that are sent. Three emissaries are sent. And uh, as I return now to Isaiah 36, uh, Isaiah only records one emissary that's sent. But we know that there's three of them there. We're okay with that. All right, so eight years after taking the northern kingdom of Israel in captivity, now Sennacherib is knocking on the door and he's going to threaten Jerusalem. And this is the, the threat and the content of this chapter is all everything he does to try to shake their faith and try to, uh, uh, try to get them to surrender the city. If you want, you can actually read Sennacherib's boasting. It can be read in the original Akkadian. If you're so, other than Glenn, I don't know who here is able to do that. Um, on a prism that's kept by the Oriental Institute of Chicago. And uh, Wikipedia gives you a, uh, a translation of it, if you're not up to speed on your Akkadian. It looks like that. It's, uh, it's a clay prism uh, written with cuneiform script and uh, in the Akkadian language. It's uh, some about 15 inches tall, all right? So uh, not, not that huge. And uh, I don't expect it's that heavy. This uh, prism, I think I made a link to it here. Maybe? Yep, there you go. So bring up the website, and there's a picture of it, and the information of it, how tall it is, the measurements, the, uh, the date it was located, when it was brought into the... Uh, into the uh, Oriental Institute and so forth. Pretty fascinating. Even the history of the Akkadian language is kind of fascinating, what it took to finally decipher it and translate it. And uh, the English translation available on Wikipedia, if you want to read from, from his own words, as Sennacherib's annals make clear. It's a lot of boasting. It's, it's, it's worthwhile only to the extent that... Um, it's a historical document. It's an archaeological find that validates everything we're reading here in these chapters. Uh, but re- remember, you're reading from an Assyrian source. And when you read an Egyptian or an Assyrian or a Babylonian or a Greek or anybody in the ancient world, you're never going to read about their defeats. Okay? Uh, so to hear the king of Assyria talk about it, he just left because he wanted to, not because the angel of the Lord flew over and killed 185,000 soldiers in one night. All right? Those kind of things the pagans aren't going to write down. 
And if you, and to read the Assyrian records, they never lost a battle. You've got to read the Babylonian records to find out about all the victories that the Babylonians had over the Assyrians. All right? So if you want to pull up the Wikipedia article on Sennacherib's annals, you'll get the, uh, the text of it there. Now, this conduit of the upper pool, we've seen it before. This was the setting for the, the virgin birth prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7. The conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field was previously the setting for Isaiah's ministry to King Ahaz in 734 B.C., 33 years ago when Isaiah had a message to that king. And now this very spot is, uh, is where this pagan has chosen to stand and start taunting the armies of the living God. All right? And uh, the same prophet, Isaiah, he's still in the ministry. He's still on hand. He served, how many kings did he serve? All right. He's still on hand and he's going to be a great encourager to King Hezekiah in this chapter today and in the chapter next week as well. I'm not going to turn there. I think you're familiar with the passage. Now, there were three agents on each side. Tartan, Rabsaris, and Rabshakah represented the, the Assyrians. And I think it's a it's unfortunate that uh, we don't hyphenate Rab Shakah like we hyphenate Rab Saris. It, it ought to be. Uh, I'm not sure why it's not. Uh, they're both titles. They're not actually proper given names anyway. Um, but that's the way it's printed in the, in the New American Standard, so I'll go with it. They, uh, they're the agents of Sennacherib. Sennacherib is still with the main uh, headquarters in Lachish. He uh, does not take the armies up. He just dispatches his emissaries to uh, utter the threats and demand the surrender. Meanwhile, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah represent uh, Hezekiah in the surrender negotiations. And uh, like I say, we're going to try to rush through this and not take the time, but we've, we have already previously seen the Tartan back in chapter 20. He uh, was threatening Ashdod at that time, and he was, he was uh, rebuked by Isaiah in that chapter. The Tartan was the highest military commander to the Assyrian Empire. You could think of him as the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian uh, armed forces. Um, Eliakim and Shebna, these two agents here, two of the three anyway, were referenced in Isaiah chapter 22. And um, I don't know if you remember that or not. That was 13 weeks ago, I suppose, or 14. Um, but in that chapter, Shebna got fired. Shebna had been the chief steward. And he got fired. He got demoted. And Eliakim was exalted in his place. And uh, in my mind, this is uh, kind of a neat development. I'm happy. I'm happy to see Shebna here. I'm happy to see him in his diminished capacity. Happy to see him <coughs> serving under Eliakim. Have you ever uh, been demoted and had to work for somebody that used to work for you? Okay. Uh, can you imagine the humility that would take? The difficulty that would take? And I'm happy to see it here. It's almost like when John, Mark, and Ben, Paul, and Barnabas were happy to read later on that they reconciled and, and, and Paul, at the end of his life, thought John, Mark was useful for service. You kind of hear that they turned out well, all right and you're happy to hear that they responded even after some difficult things. I'm delighted that Shebna responded after his demotion, after the prophetic announcement and his expulsion from office. He's still serving in this limited capacity. Whatever capacity God has for him, he's, he's serving in. And to me, that's uh, kind of a neat, a neat principle. Now, what starts happening here is Satan and his agents are mocking the trusting that we trust, the faith that you trust in, all right? The trusting that we trust. 
even as they cast doubts on what God has actually said. As we read this taunt, understand we hear the same thing today. The world tells us the same thing all day, every day. Why are you trusting in that Bible? Why do you listen to that God and that Bible and so forth? Can't you get with the times? Can't you come and welcome to the 21st century? Let go of that primitive belief. What is this trusting that you trust? So let's uh, hear some of these horrible words. Rabshakeh said to them, say, uh, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this trusting that you trust, this confidence that you have or that you trust in? We have both the noun and the verb there. It's kind of a fun idiom. I say, I say your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt. Remember in earlier chapters, they had emissaries. They had snuck through the desert to try to bribe Egypt and try to make an alliance with Egypt. And Isaiah nailed them on that too and said, Egypt's not going to bail you out. Egypt's no help. And uh, here are the Assyrians saying the same thing. So uh, there's just a crushed reed. If you lean on it, it's going to pierce your hand. You're going to die. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, uh uh-oh, isn't that cute? You know, unbelievers think you're so cute for the, the Bible you still trust in. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? That's not what he was doing, but this pagan doesn't know that. And said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. He offers him a deal. It says, your trust is useless. Let me, that's not going to do anything for you. Make a deal now and you can have peace. All right, so they're casting doubt on what they're trusting. What is this confidence that you have in verse 4? What is this trust that you trust? Don't say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. We trust in Yahweh, our Elohim. That doesn't impress the Assyrians, not at all. Even as they cast doubts on what God actually said. Look what he says here in verse 10. Have I now come up without the Lord's approval? (laughs) You're trusting in Yahweh, but Yahweh sent me up here. Yahweh is the one that told me to come destroy you guys. You see, casting doubts on what the Lord actually said. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. See how insidious that is? It's like the serpent talking to Eve saying, oh, no, no, God's lying to you. God knows the day you eat from it, you're going to be like him. Your eyes are going to be open and everything's going to be great. <laughs> it's the same lie. You know, it never, the lyrics never change, it's the tune sometimes, okay? All right, so Satan and his agents mocking the trust, the trusting that we trust. Anyway, it's horrible. Hezekiah's negotiators attempted to keep the negotiation spoken in Aramaic, but Rabshakeh spoke openly in Hebrew. And we have this here in verses 11 and 12, and then the verses that follow. Eliakim and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak with us in Judean, or Hebrew, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. You know, the, the terrible things they're saying are, well, they're, they're lies, they're satanic, and it's not edifying, and, and the people on the wall might may hear things like, Yahweh's against them. That's not true. 
Why, why, why do you want to expose your people to those kind of lies? But Rabshakeh said, no, I, I intend to uh, keep on lying and I'm going to keep speaking in Hebrew. Has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall? He said, my message is for them. In fact, it's more important for them. See, this is what an agitator wants to do. He wants to stir up the crowd. He wants to get the, the rabble all rabbled, right? Aroused, rabble rousers. You've got to rouse the rabble, all right? So that they will, that they will uh, rise up in defiance of their leadership, okay? How do you attack the man? You get to his wife. How do you attack the king? You get to his subjects. And you get them all riled up, disoriented to the promises God has made. So, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, men that are doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you. That's kind of gruesome. All right. What a crummy verse on Potluck Sunday. All right, but there it is. You know, living under siege conditions is not good. Okay. And you never survive a siege unless the army besieging you gives up and goes away. Uh, if, if they've got enough food and, and if they can outlast you, you will run out of food. There's a finite amount of stores within your walls. And, uh, and that's why if you force the siege, um, there's no mercy when it's done. Uh, they're going to come in and they're going to kill every last thing that's breathing that's, that's managed to survive that long. It's the penalty for forcing the siege. That's why the surrender negotiations are being taken right now. Surrender now, and we let you live. All right. But Rabshakeh spoke openly in Hebrew, and the reason why is because, uh, again, the, uh, the, it's not only an attempt to influence King Hezekiah, but it's an attempt to dissettle, to, to spark fear in the audience of those that, uh, that are listening. All right. And, as you might expect... As I mentioned, this is nothing new. This tactic has worked ever since Eve. Israel's leadership is discredited and accused of deception. Israel's leadership is discredited and accused of deception. We see it in verse 14. We see it in verse 16. We see it in verse 18. We see it all over the place today. All right. Verse 13. Rabshakeh stood and cried out with a loud voice in Judean and said... Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. You see why they do that? Here's the pot calling the kettle black, right? Here's liars calling Hezekiah a liar. They did the same thing with Jesus. The Pharisees went to Pontius Pilate and said, uh, they said, man, that that deceiver, when he was still alive, said he was going to rise again on the third day. You know, and then... Pilate was like, well, if he's a deceiver, why do you care? <laughs> no, he said, you've got a guard, secure the tomb. Why are you worried about it? So they, they guarded the tomb for three days and couldn't keep him from rising from the dead anyway. But notice, they called Jesus a deceiver. Likewise here, they're calling Hezekiah the deceiver. Satan in the Garden of Eden called God a deceiver, discrediting leadership. In Eve's case, it was her husband Adam. In this case, it's, the, uh, it's King Hezekiah discrediting the leadership verse uh see do not let hezekiah deceive you for he will not be able to deliver you and even in this there's more deception 
Hezekiah never promised the people that he, Hezekiah, was going to deliver them. All right? It's like people tell you, well, you can't believe your pastor. Your pastor doesn't have all the answers. And they discredit your church. They discredit your pastor. They discredit your Bible and all this. And even in their lies, they're telling even more lies because your pastor never said he had all the answers. Right? Hezekiah never said he was going to save these people. Verse 16, do not listen to Hezekiah. Like telling Eve, don't listen to your husband. Don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. What, is Sennacherib all of a sudden the prince of peace? Why is he promising this? Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each his vine and each his fig tree. Drink each of the waters from his own cistern. Boy, this sounds wonderful. This sounds like a millennial promise. (laughs) Reason why, he's stealing a millennial promise. And he's using it in his lie. Until I come and take you away to a magical faraway place. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. A land of grain and new wine. A land of bread and vineyards. You might as well have said a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, he's promising them something that they already have as they trust in the Lord and his rescue, his deliverance, his salvation. This is what Satan does. He creates alternatives and he says they're better. And he causes believers to get their eyes off the Lord and to reject the promises of God. Discrediting leadership, accusing that leadership of of deception. Verse 18, beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, right? Remember when that weirdo put the beware Pastor Bob notes on your windshields? Okay, that was years ago in the old building. Yeah, people left church and had these beware Pastor Bob notes under their windshield wipers in the parking lot. All right. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Okay, And this taunt will continue to name all these gods. And this city fell, their God didn't save them. This city fell, their God didn't save them. This city fell, their God didn't save them. Your city's going to fall and Yahweh's not going to save you. In fact, Yahweh sent me to destroy you guys. Part of the lies that are there. This satanic tactic has worked ever since Eve. It has worked ever since Eve. Notice, Trusting in Yahweh is mocked as useless. Trusting in or faith in Yahweh is mocked as useless. That's verse 15. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. They're mocking the very concept of trusting in God. And in fact, they're accusing it as a forced faith. Don't let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. All right? Like, don't let your pastor make you believe in the Bible. Don't let your parents make you believe in Christianity or the Bible. Think about it. Every single time our kids get off to college and they get to the campus, what are they told? Well, you're only, you only believe the Bible because your parents made you believe the Bible and they forced you to, uh, to accept this, right? And then they say, well, come on now. 
you start to you got to see there's so much more besides that. Hezekiah can't make them believe anything. Pastor can't make you believe anything or trust in anything. Faith is exercised from the capacity of your own soul, or it's not exercised in capacity of your own soul. Faith can never be coerced. All right. Mocked is useless. I think also the, the idea of prayer is mocked. Hezekiah is going to take this as a matter of prayer. Well, what good is that? Okay. And how, how does prayer get attacked? Prayer gets attacked because it's recast as kind of a, a last resort. It's recast as kind of a, well, nothing else to do. Might as well pray. Okay. I've tried everything else and none of that works, so I might as well pray now. All right. And sadly, even Christians adopt this attitude. Believers adopt this attitude. They say, oh, I wish I could help you, but all I really can do now is pray. Well, what do you mean that's all you can do? That's the first thing you should start with. I don't care about the rest of it. All right. But people say that. Well, I'd love to support you financially, but I can't really. But I, all I can do is pray for you. That's all you can do? Start with that. Don't end with that. Trust in the Lord. So faith gets attacked. This is another satanic tactic designed to take one's eyes off the Lord. He tried this when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross. He attempted to get God the Son to stop trusting in God the Father. And thank God, (laughs) the uh, attempt was unsuccessful in Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. Are you familiar with this? Ought to be. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. These are the words of our Savior while He hung on the cross, purchasing our redemption. Written by David a thousand years ahead of time prophetically, but recited by our Savior. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Gospel record quotes that verbatim. I believe he went on and recited the entire psalm by memory. Gospel record does not quote that verbatim. Just my idea, my theory. But he says, uh, here's Jesus on the cross, far from my deliverance of the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night. I have no rest, yet you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. He knows he's going to trust in Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. There is no other rescue for Israel. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. You can imagine if Jesus Christ allows himself to be distracted by the subjectivity of human opposition, this verse would be the end of the chapter, and he would lose it. He would lose his objectivity. He would lose his faith. He would get all distracted like you and I do at the human rejection. Who wants to be a worm? Who wants to be a reproach of men and despised by the people? All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, and I notice, this is almost like the words of Rabshakeh at the conduit. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. You know, if God loved you, he'd take you down off that cross. Oh, you're still on that cross, huh? I guess God doesn't love you. So come on down yourself. 
You shouldn't suffer like that. Come on down. All right. Commit yourself to the Lord. It's a taunt. It's an absolute taunt. Mocking the faith is useless. He doesn't bite. doesn't go for it. He says, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Understand, Jesus didn't need to get saved. He was already in a right relationship with God the Father from the moment of his physical birth. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Anyway, there's more. I don't want to get lost in this whole chapter. But understand, this is a a tactic. Faith is mocked, is diminished, is criticized as being less than uh, less than other things you might try. All right? It's mocked as being a, an inferior knowledge. That's another tactic they like to do. That somehow what you believe is inferior to what you know. Right? And then they will contrast that. They have word games that they play. They say, oh, really? Is that what you believe? Here's what I know. And they act as if knowledge is superior to believing. As if science is superior to faith. And, and they, they diminish faith and basically by saying, well, belief is what you run to when you can't really know something. And so you just believe that it's true even though you can't really know it that it's true. And it's this the satanic attack on faith. I've got it upside down and backwards. Okay? All right. Peace and prosperity is offered by a king who reshapes the world for his own personal blessing shaping it in his own image, as it were. And every Antichrist has has always done this. Eschatologically, the ultimate Antichrist will do this on a scale never before seen, as this cosmos is going to be reshaped to his image, all to the glory of the dragon in in the tribulation. But peace and prosperity is offered by a king who reshapes the world for his blessing. I tell you, we've got verses 16 and 17 here promising the vine and the cistern and the and uh i'm going to come and take you away to a land like your own land a great uh, land of grain and new wine a land of bread and vineyards the assyrians one something particular about the assyrians is they were uh they were movers you know they would conquer people and then move them to uh, a place that they had conquered just before these guys right and they would they would that's how the samaritans ended up in samaria and that's how you know Israel got conquered and they got swept away. They were placed in those, those uh, locations that we read at the beginning of this hour, all right? And because that region had been previously conquered. And the plan was now to conquer Jerusalem and Judah. All these cities that they took away from Judah, they gave to the Philistines, all right? They moved Philistines over into there. And the concept being is you take a people away from their native land... You take them away from their, you, uh, you ban their native language. You start to reorient them to the Assyrian language in a new land. You start to reprogram them with a different identity, different loyalties. It was their theory, all right? And I think it was an effective theory because centuries later, there's still Samaritans living in the land of Samaria. Ends up being a conflict in the life of Christ and with the, with the disciples there. And so here's this king, and here's his dreams of these things. As I peek back to chapter 10, Isaiah chapter 10, I think there's some aspects here that we ought to pay attention to. You might recall, God did select Assyria 
to be the instrument of his wrath to discipline the northern kingdom, but not the southern kingdom, all right? He selected the Assyrians to be the agents of his wrath to afflict the northern kingdom. That was by his design, not the southern kingdom. That was Assyria's idea. That was Sennacherib's idea. But Shalmaneser and the Assyrian empire was selected to be the hand of God's judgment upon the northern kingdom. And that was uttered by the prophet Isaiah back in chapter 10. And in the context of that, it was a woe message against Assyria. It says in Isaiah 10:5, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. Isaiah is pronouncing the message of woe against the Assyrians. God selected the Assyrians to discipline Israel so that he could then destroy the Assyrians. He didn't pick Assyria because they were this great holy nation. He picked them because they were a wicked nation slated for destruction. And remember, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. No, he's going to pick a cursed nation to afflict Israel so that he will then be faithful to his promise to curse those who curse them. See how that works? He's not going to pick a godly nation to curse them. Then he would have to afflict the godly nation. He picks a wicked nation to afflict a wicked nation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and seize plunder, to trample them down like mud in the streets. Notice now, though, this was God's purpose. But what does Assyria purpose? Yet it does not so intend, nor does it so plan in its own heart. But rather, it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. See, they think there's, hey, there's no stopping us. We're going to reshape the world in our image. For it says, are not my princes all kings? Is not Calno like Carchemish or Hamath like Arpad or Samaria like Damascus? All right. And so Assyria gets full of themselves. Assyria thinks, man, we can't lose a battle. As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose graven images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria... Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? You see where they're off the rails here at this point? Assyria figures, man, we can't lose. We win everywhere we go. And we just finished crushing Samaria. Next target, Jerusalem. And God says, no, 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 no. I didn't assign you to afflict Jerusalem. All right? And so here's this, here's the Assyrians trying to reshape the world to their own image or to their own blessing. Even the, uh, the term blessing, the Baraka blessing that uh, is spoken of there in Isaiah 36, 16, I find interesting. Make your Baraka with me in verse 16. It's not shalom, peace. It's Baraka blessing. Make your Baraka blessing with me and come out to me. I find that interesting as well. The vine and fig tree promise mocks the Lord's vine and fig tree prophecy from Micah chapter 4. And I wish we had, I'd probably spend six weeks on this all alone. The vine and fig tree promise. The vine and fig tree promise mocks the Lord's vine and fig tree prophecy from Micah chapter 4. And what's... The most remarkable thing about this, this vine and fig tree prophecy, 
Let me grab this real quickly from Micah chapter 4. Yeah. There's some great stuff in this. Micah chapter 4. So who cares about Micah? He's a minor prophet and he didn't have much to say. What's interesting, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Either Isaiah copied from Micah or Micah copied from Isaiah. Because these verses are almost word for word from Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4. Except for the vine and fig tree prophecy from verses 4 and 5. Isaiah does not include that in his chapter 2 material. And I find that extraordinary. Isaiah mirrored Micah 4 in Isaiah 2, but he did not mirror this vine and fig tree prophecy. So, Micah chapter 4. This is what Israel has to look forward to. It will come about in the last days. Are you with me still? Micah chapter 4? All right. It will come about in the last days. When's this going to be fulfilled? In the last days. It's eschatological. That the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. This place, Jerusalem, is going to be exalted and magnified. Gentiles will be streaming here. We're not going to be streaming out there to some promised magical land, right? This magical faraway place where the towels are also fluffy and the air smells like warm root beer. Okay? Or whatever else. All of these amazing promises. No, the nations are going to stream here. This is the place of blessing. This is the place of fulfilled prophecy. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. They're not showing up to mock faith in the Lord. They're coming to take part in faith in the Lord. Let's go to the house of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways. We may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for many for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. This is the millennial prophecy that was given by Micah. Part of it was given by Isaiah. Given to the northern kingdom. Given to the southern kingdom. All right. And it is in this context where it says each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. This vine and fig tree promise is connected to the millennial prophecies of Micah. And this is the very prophecy, the very promise that Rabshakeh is mocking. As he says, go ahead, Enjoy your vine and your, and your fig tree, but as you submit to me, I'm taking you to your new land. All right? And he's mocking the very promises, the millennial promises that have been given to Israel for Israel to trust in. So I find it interesting how Isaiah then is going to adapt Micah 4 in Isaiah 2, but when he does so, he stops with the swords and the plowshares. He stops with that verse. He, Isaiah does not record the, the vine and fig tree uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, even while he records the blasphemy here in these verses right here. 
All right, let's get to the end of the chapter. Uh, so just make peace with me. Give me Baraka. Come out to me. And uh, you can have your farewell feast. You know, it's kind of like a condemned man gets a, gets a final meal. You can have your final enjoyment of your vine and fig tree and cistern, but then I'm taking you to a land, this new magical faraway place. All right. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you. Yahweh will not deliver you. Has there been any God yet that's been able to deliver any nation from us? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? You ever heard of them? There's a reason for that, okay? Where are the gods of the Sepharvaim? You ever heard of them? There's a reason for that, okay? When God removes these nations from human history, they're gone. When have they delivered Samaria from my hand? By the way, Yahweh should have been Samaria's God too, but it wasn't. Samaria was trusting in idols, had two golden calves and other problems. Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their land from my hand that the Lord, that Yahweh, would deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Assyria says, look, we can't lose. Yahweh is going to fall before Asher. They worshiped the God. Their God was called Asher. Now notice, I love this. Here's the people. The, the rabble was supposed to be roused up, right? Did it work? Did the rabble get roused? What was the response? I love this. They were silent. Why were they silent? Because their king told them to be silent. Okay? They were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. This is interesting. King Hezekiah not only sent three agents to go and take part in the peace negotiations, but he also personally briefed, I think, briefed these men stationed on the wall. Clued them in as to what they might anticipate. Clued them in as to how their faith was going to be tested. And advised them, warned them, commanded them. Don't answer a word. Don't reply. All right, it's pearls before swine. Don't listen to it. Don't worry about it. They're a bunch of liars anyway. And I love this. They were silent and answered him not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer him. The people responded to the leadership of their king. That's extraordinary. All right? It's extraordinary. I think it's a testimony to what kind of a king he was. So, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, that's the job Shebna used to have, and Shebna, the scribe, that's his demoted status, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, they finish their peace negotiations or they're listening to the terms. And they come to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And this is where we'll pick up next week because in chapter 37 we have the response. We have what Hezekiah is going to do. And we see the humility. We see the fear of the Lord. And we see how they go to prayer. And we see how the king doesn't feel like he has to have all the answers. The men sitting on the wall, these guys supposedly doomed to endure the shame of their siege. These men sitting on the wall remain obedient to Hezekiah's instructions. And I find that interesting. What are we going to do? What are churches going to do? Are they going to be obedient to their teaching? Or are they going to cave when uh, forces of darkness start demanding that different things start happening in places like this? 
The men sitting on the wall remained obedient. They allowed for Eliakim's team to report back to their king. You know, the alternative would be this crowd gets all riled up and they don't permit the envoys to even back in the city. They kill them and they surrender right there on the spot to the uh, to the envoys. But no, they keep they keep their possession their position on the wall and they allow the uh, envoys to return back to King Hezekiah. Well, we'll pick up here again next week. This is the fun chapter. This is where uh, the angel of the Lord flies by and Sennacherib decides, you know what, this would be a good time to go back home. And uh, it's a good ending. But along the way, we see a very powerful prayer and we see the benefit of uh, laying our burdens before the Lord because uh, he cares for us. His plan is the plan we want to be pursuing anyway. So pick up on this next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for these chapters. I pray that we would study them and not only understand the application in that day and age, but also what's expected of us. What's expecting of us when the, the rapture of our generation stand before us and start threatening all kinds of things. Father, do we keep focused on you? Do we remain trusting in you? You are the, our trust. So, Father, I, I just pray for our nation. We see the direction it's going. <clears throat> we, uh, we know the anger you have, and we share in that, Father. And yet we also know the long-suffering and patience you have, and we want to share in that as well. Father, the kindness of God, the patience of God is salvation. And you've been so patient with our nation. I pray that we would be evangelistic agents of your salvation to this lost and dying world. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.